CNAS is launching its second chapter in the Women in National Security podcast series titled The Last Word. What's the last word women in the field want to have about being a woman in national security? Subscribe to CNAS Podcast for a new story every week. This is Lauren DeYoung Shulman. We're here in the next part of our Women in National Security podcast series, where we are talking to national security experts in a variety of fields outside the strictly policy arena. I'm here today with Jennifer Griffin, who is a national security correspondent with Fox News. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Lauren. So the first question I want to ask, I'm sure you get this all the time, uh, is when did you first know you were going to be a journalist? You have been in this field uh, all over the world. You've lived in the Middle East, in Pakistan. I think you started in South Africa. But what was the, the defining moment of this is my career? Well, I would say the defining moment was after my sophomore year at Harvard, I met two visiting fellows from South Africa. One was a Neiman Foundation scholar who was the editor of a newspaper in Soweto called the Sowetan. And at the time, apartheid was still in effect, so it was 1989. And he invited me to come down and work at that newspaper in Soweto. And it was an offer I couldn't uh, turn down. And there was another professor at Harvard who was visiting from South Africa. And he was teaching at the University of the Western Cape, which at the time was known as a colored university, and it was a hotbed for ANC activity. Nelson Mandela was still on Robben Island. And so I really went down with very little plan other than that I was going to f be a freelance journalist for a year and, um, and go see what was going on on the front lines of the, uh, the, the uh, fight against apartheid. Um, so I went down and very quickly things started to change because F.W. de Klerk had just been elected president. Nobody anticipated he would start making the changes he did as quickly as he did. And I ended up meeting my future husband, who was a journalist at the time with the AP in Soweto at the first legal ANC rally. And um, shortly thereafter, Mandela was released from prison. We were there that day. I started writing for newspapers at that time. And I had caught the bug. The, that same year, I had gone up to Namibia for their independence with another group of journalists from the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer and others. And I just realized this was what I wanted to do. So I had to go back and finish up two years at Harvard. But I found a way. I was studying under uh, Samuel Huntington. Mm -hmm. And he uh, was my thesis advisor. So I went back down to do my thesis on the conflicts, but conflict between at the time between Zulus and Kosas. And it was really the the uh, an excuse to be back and witnessing the violence in the townships. What was the causality of it? And to hang out with the journalists who were covering the every everyday. Uh, changes that were occurring and and at that point I realized that being a journalist was being a having a front row seat to history happening before your eyes um, shortly after that and this is a long-winded answer as to how I became a journalist but um, my uh, boyfriend at the time who was working for the AP had been sent up to Mogadishu Somalia during the famine of uh, 1992 the summer of 92 before Black Hawk Down before the US military engaged and I took the graduation money that I had received from my father that was supposed to last a year and help me set up my freelancing gig in South Africa. And I flew up to uh, follow him to Mogadishu, but there were no international flights at the time. We flew into, I flew in a few weeks after he had arrived in 
to Nairobi, went to the airport there to negotiate with UNICEF to get a flight into Mogadishu because at the time there was, uh, there were uh, armed technicals flying around. There were it was a civil war in place. There was the famine, and it was too dangerous for commercial planes to land, and so. I was talking to UNICEF, I wasn't an accredited journalist at the time, and I went to the other end of the airport where the cot dealers, the, uh, the dealers of, in the drug cot, were um, willing to take journalists in if you paid your weight in cot, in the drug cot, and, and those flights were pretty regular. So I was in the process of negotiating that when someone from UNICEF felt sorry for me and put me on a plane. At that point, I arrived, and it was just AP, Reuters, BBC. I still, to this day, see correspondents out there who we first met in Mogadishu. Um, and it was, it was a lesson, you know, uh, in, I mean, there were, we, we covered the famine up close. Mm -hmm. We covered, it was a civil war raging. And after that, um, Greg, my uh, now husband, after almost 30 years, mm -hmm. we met 30 years ago, uh, we moved to Islamabad, Pakistan. We arrived just as Benazir Bhutto was running for her second term. So we arrived in Pakistan in 1993. Benazir Bhutto was just uh, running for her second term as prime minister. She had made news, of course, being the first uh, female head of a modern Muslim state. And so we were very excited to meet her. She had also gone to Harvard. Um, and so I thought I would really enjoy getting to know her and seeing what she was doing. But what we saw instead was that her interior minister was busy forming the Taliban in Afghanistan. I was working for Voice of America, freelancing for uh, Los Angeles Times and U.S. News and World Report. I was, because I was a freelancer, I was able to go to Afghanistan uh, because the Mujahideen were still fighting one another, a very vicious civil war taking place, a lot of the same characters who we're still dealing, dealing with there now. Uh, but the Voice of America correspondents were barred from going there because of the State Department concerns about safety, et cetera. Um, and so uh, the time in Pakistan was absolutely formative in terms of understanding the Muslim world, uh, the tensions between Sunnis and Shias. We were covering bombings of those mosques. We were watching as the madrasas were formed and the Taliban were being recruited. And we were very concerned that uh, we were hearing even members of our own government, uh, people from the CIA, saying that they thought the Taliban could be a good idea. And that just seemed patently absurd at the time. Um, so, and here we are you know, just yesterday, uh, today, in fact, later today, I'm sitting down with the ambassador from Afghanistan, uh, Secretary Mattis is heading there next week. Uh, Greg and I spent my, uh, our honeymoon in Kabul back in 1994, which few people believe, um, and we were, you know, sleeping in a bunker mm -hmm. <laughs> there. And um, it, it really was a very uh, formative time in terms of understanding uh, the the conflicts that the post 9/11 conflicts and the roots of the the conflict which really go back to uh, back to Afghanistan of course um, and it was interesting because I was up at Harvard this last weekend for a seminar on how to cover nuclear issues as a national security correspondent and uh, and I was asked how did I get involved with nuclear issues and what was my first story and I thought back and it was in Pakistan 1998 I covered the uh, the nuclear test when India and Pakistan basically went nuclear and and few people remember that that is truly the most realistic flashpoint in terms of a potential nuclear war and 
So fast forward, we moved to Cyprus and covered um, the Middle East, uh, Iraq, Syria, Iran, traveled there frequently. Um, uh, Greg was news editor with the AP, and I was freelancing again for NPR and mm -hmm. others. This was before Fox was formed. Uh, we moved to Moscow in 1996, and shortly thereafter, Fox was formed. I was doing radio for ABC at the time, and they hired me to be their first correspondent in Moscow. And I have been with them since six months after Fox was formed. Um, I've had amazing assignments. We watched the end of the Yeltsin era, the rise of Putin. Um, I covered the Kosovo conflict for Fox. And then in 1999, they sent me to Jerusalem. And at the time, it seemed like that was going to be our first peaceful assignment because we had been covering wars in Africa, the Middle East. And Famous last words. <laughs> and, and the Oslo peace process was going on in 99. And we really thought it was quite boring. And, and we were going to um, finally start a family. So I got pregnant. And uh, shortly after I got pregnant, uh, the Intifada began. And I was there that day when Ariel Sharon went up to the Temple Mount and the Intifada began that Friday with stone throwing. And, and later, um, the whole West Bank, Gaza, was shut off and uh, walls were built and, and incursions occurred and suicide bombings were uh, you know, occurring every other day in Jerusalem and elsewhere. And we covered all of them for seven and a half years. I had two children born there. I would go to work with a black jacket on. Mm -hmm. I uh, took my Modella pump in style to my interview with the Hamas chief down in mm -hmm. Gaza. Um, it was wild times. Um, I, my daughter Amelia, the second, our second daughter was born on the eve of the Iraq uh, war uh, when we uh, exited the hospital. We were given a gas mask tent for her crib. Uh, we were all required to carry gas masks at the time because they believed Saddam Hussein was going to fire chemical weapons mm -hmm. into Israel. It was a very, very challenging time. And then, lo and behold, after covering the U.S. military and conflicts around the world, um, we finally sort of put up the white flag and said, we, I think we need to move back to the U.S. And that's when I was assigned to the Pentagon, and I've been there for the past 10 years. So the next question is an obvious one, um, and you probably get it a lot, uh, but it's also sort of frustrating that it's an obvious one, is that uh, what is it like to be a woman in this field? And it's frustrating in the sense that I think you and I talked about before we started recording, like I, I want to be somebody who's an expert in this field. I am a professional. The fact that I'm a woman is sort of by happenstance. But how, how do you answer that typically? Do you answer it differently for different audiences? Well, I think, um, I think it's important as a woman in this field to be a role model to others and to encourage women to get into this field. So mm -hmm. I don't want to diminish uh, the role that we play. But I must say, I never thought of myself as, I'm a woman in national security. Mm -hmm. I have always just, my career evolved from being a correspondent on the front lines and doing the same things that, I, I didn't think of myself as a, a woman correspondent either. But I will say that I operated for much of my 20s and 30s in, uh, in places where I would sometimes be the only woman, whether it was in the Middle East um, on assignment, interviewing Islamic leaders, uh, jihadists. I would. I remember one of my key interviews that I think I was uniquely positioned to do because I was a pregnant woman mm -hmm. at the time, um, was interviewing the mother of a suicide bomber in Gaza. And it was a very, very uh, insightful and interesting look into the mind of a suicide bomber and his mother. And I was pregnant at the time and covered up interviewing her. And that was sort of um, a, a, a very, very powerful position that I had as a 
on the verge of having my first child, talking to this mother who had just sent her child to be a suicide bomber in, in Israel. Um, and so I think I, I, I think my strength as a reporter in the Middle East was that I often perhaps, perhaps uh, people would speak to me, meet with me because they underestimated me as a woman. And so I had access in a way, much the same way that remember our Marines decided they wanted to have all female units who mm -hmm. could go in and interview the women in these households in Afghanistan who uh, often knew where Taliban fighters were or where the young men of the village were. Um, but if you were a man, you wouldn't be allowed to enter that household where, where the women are in Perda and talk to those women who were key sources of intelligence. Mm -hmm. So I think we cut off uh, at the military, the US military finally realized we were cutting off access to half the population by not using women in combat situations. Well, we female correspondents, and I count many, many who went before me, women in Vietnam, Edie Letterer of the mm -hmm. AP, uh, Kathy Gannon of the AP, who had been in uh, Afghanistan and it, since the Mujahideen were there. She was a dear friend in Islamabad. She was uh, shot uh, two years ago by an AK-47 when she and another female photojournalist were covering the Afghan elections. Uh, these women are heroes of mine and lay the groundwork to allow me to do what I did as a journalist. Now, it just so happened by having a front row seat and by going to places that um, other males and females wouldn't go. When I went to Lebanon, it was because a male correspondent for, um, for NPR uh, had said he wouldn't go because it was too dangerous. So my willingness to go places, and I I rolled that back to how I was raised as a kid and how I played sports as a young woman, and I really credit Title IX for teaching me how to be on the on the playing field and how to get, you know, how to throw a few elbows on the on the soccer field for uh, why I felt a confidence, a uh, and and a security in terms of going to dangerous places, and and I was willing to go places sometimes that male colleagues weren't, and mm -hmm. that gave me an opportunity to, to, uh, to get my start as a journalist. So as a result, I had a lot of experience in a lot of the places where the U.S. military was serving when I came back to Washington. I had been in Israel during the Intifada. I had a lot of contacts in Pakistan. I had sat in AQ Khans, the nuclear, you know, the father of the nuclear bomb in Pakistan's living room when we lived in Islamabad. Um, I had been in Mogadishu before the Marines had arrived. So there were, we had a, I had been in Iraq before the Iraq war and uh, covered Saddam Hussein's regime and the weapons inspectors uh, before the war. Mm -hmm. So I had a tremendous amount of experience and stories that I could prove myself rather quickly to the military leadership at yeah. the Pentagon. And there was a great deal of trust because I had that field experience. So I think what, what makes myself and other women who've risen up through the ranks in the military similar is that if you've had field experience, mm -hmm. it really doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, uh, maybe you're accepted a little faster in these all-male environments. Uh, uh, but I have never felt that I was shut out because I was a woman. I've never felt that I was treated specially because I was a woman. I simply was a, uh, but I did, 
find that in the Middle East, I had access to a larger part of the population because I could speak to women. And those interviews that I did with jihadists and Muslim leaders and males who maybe didn't think women were as threatening as men, uh, I got some pretty great stories as a result of that. Diplomats tell similar stories about how they are in the field treated as almost like a third gender. Basically, you're 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 not special a woman. Special category. You're a special you're category. A, you're yeah. not a man. You are a special thing unto yourself. And I, I experienced the same thing in the Pentagon, as a, a woman who quite often knew as much or more about a particular area of the world or a particular national security problem than my mil- military male counterparts. Um, so. You have had an, an amazing, mind-blowing career. If you could go back and give advice to your younger self at any point in your career, whether it be starting out um, or in your, in your many moves to dangerous places, uh, what would it be? Well, the advice I would give is uh, now as a mother of three children and teenage daughters who want to go do the same things I did, mm-hmm. I would probably, unfortunately, if I looked back and gave advice to my younger self, I'd say, don't do it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and because it was so, in hindsight, I can't believe the places we went. Those yeah. places, many of them are no-go zones now. Yeah. You couldn't do what we did. I mean, when journalists were not a target when I was starting out, we felt like we could be in dangerous places uh, like Mogadishu or um, uh, or Pakistan uh, or Afghanistan during the war and Gaza and where else because people wanted to tell us their stories we still felt like UN peacekeepers in a sense where we were the neutral white flag raising uh, storytellers mm-hmm. who both sides of a conflict I mean we could walk across the front lines and we did uh, you after Daniel Pearl was killed and after mm-hmm. bounties were put on the heads of journalists in Bosnia you can't do that without I mean it's a death wish to go to um, Syria right now and we saw what happened to James Foley and our yeah. colleagues there it's um, so my hat is off to the young brash freelance reporters who uh, go to the war zones now, but I would have a hard time recommending that as a mother now and mm-hmm. as somebody who looks back and realizes how many times we narrowly escaped very, very serious situations and how very lucky we were to come out on the other side. A lot of our friends didn't. You have mentioned your husband a few times, and he is, uh, for folks who don't know, also a national security journalist uh, and at NPR. Yes, he's at NPR now. Uh, the so I, I'm married to a, a um, technology policy expert who works in technology and law and privacy, and even at our age, balancing a kid and two careers that are going to be incredibly demanding uh, has been difficult for us, and I know difficult for a lot of our peers. You guys have managed to do that. It appears to be flawlessly, but I'm sure that it has been a, a trial at some points in time. Any insights from that or lessons from that? Well, we we didn't do it alone. Mm-hmm. We've uh, my mom lives nearby here mm-hmm. in Washington. We've had uh, the same babysitter for 17 years, mm-hmm. so that is a key part of our success, and and we feel very grateful for that support system. Uh, we don't sleep a lot. We have raised our kids to be pretty independent. They. Um, <laughs> Oh, I mean, there are funny stories of what they will say to us in terms of things we've forgotten or things we haven't shown up to that other parents show up to. Mm-hmm. But as a result, some the, the two girls are teenagers now, and they were both born in Jerusalem during the Intifada, and they know how crazy our lives were and how we would sometimes... I mean, I remember literally on my daughter's first birthday... Um, planting her in front of a balloon and taking a picture of her with a couple of presents in front because I had to run off to a suicide bombing. I wasn't going to be able to 
celebrate her birthday. I had no, and I thought, well, at least I have photographic evidence that she won't feel neglected when she's older because uh, <laughs> there's a picture that's saying that we celebrated her birthday. This last Friday, I was up at, at um, this, this incredible symposium on covering nuclear issues, and I missed my son's ninth birthday. But, mm -hmm. uh, but, but he, you know, they've come to understand that the world is bigger than them. I, I often say to them, you know, military families, their moms get sent for 15 months sometimes overseas, 12 months they're away. So, okay, we may miss one or two events, but let's have some perspective that the world does not revolve around you. And, and guess what? There's a bus line up the road. You can get on the bus and, and get to almost anywhere you need to in the city. And I think as a result, they have grown up extremely independent, and I think it will serve them well in the long run. So we are very, but Greg and I are great partners. We uh, have allowed, our careers have not always been moving at the same moment in the same direction, and one of us will be, when we move back to the States, for instance, Greg took a year off and wrote, began writing a book mm -hmm. that we authored together about mm -hmm. our time in Israel, and um, and that was a time when I was starting my new job at the Pentagon. He started a new job with NPR recently, uh, being an on-air correspondent for covering national security. I'm in a more stable place in my career and have a little more flexibility. Um, we just have kind of tag-teamed this over time, but we've also benefited from a great community. When we lived overseas, the other parents who also had young kids, we teamed up and the kids, uh, there was a great sense of community, mm -hmm. that expat community of reporters. In fact, we had a reunion recently uh, for our reporter friends from Jerusalem, and, and that's how we got through it. I don't know how we got through it. I'm still exhausted, yeah. but, but you know what? We, um, uh, I'm very proud that we, we have kept a very solid marriage, and we've raised three kids while also covering some very uh, stressful events over time. Mm -hmm. So the, the theme of this podcast series is the last word, and we always ask the people involved, uh, if, there, if there was a question that you never wanted to be asked again on being a woman in national security, or if this is the last time you were ever going to talk about it, if you, what message would you have for the folks who are listening? <laughs> Ooh, that's a tough question. Um, I, I don't really want to be seen as a woman in national security. I cover national security, mm -hmm. and I... I'm very proud of the fact that I don't think people at the Pentagon see me as a woman. They mm -hmm. see me as a experienced veteran correspondent. Um, but what I would probably say, given the time period that we're existing in right now, I'd like to give advice to younger women. Um, I'm baffled and humbled by the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. I don't have a Me Too story, and I feel incredibly, I've scratched my head and I've wondered, why is it that I somehow was in these, so many of these all-male environments, whether it was in the Middle East or a lot of vulnerable situations, and I don't have those stories. Perhaps it was because I was a freelancer and I wasn't working in a work structure where anyone was over me and could lord any power over me. Maybe that helped. But my advice right now, if I had the last word right now to my young daughters and young women who are coming up in this field, is be tough, set up strong, firm boundaries, don't let being a woman deter you from doing anything, but also use your street smarts and don't allow yourself to be put into a position where you're having drinks with someone who's a boss late, you know, in the evening and you find yourself in a vulnerable position. 
be the same, use the same street smarts in an office setting in downtown Washington, D.C. that you would if you were on the streets of Mogadishu and carry yourself with a bit of uh, strength and have your radar up and, and let's stop allowing uh, uh, any, uh, let's, let's make sure men know that this is not acceptable and let's make sure we're never afraid to speak up if it does happen to us because I'm, I'm very saddened to hear that so many of my friends and colleagues held these stories in their hearts for so many years because either they thought nobody would believe them or they thought that they needed to keep quiet to get ahead. Um, let's make sure we speak up. Let's make sure we know that there are female mentors and veteran women ahead of us mm -hmm. who you can turn to if this happens to you so that this, and we nip it in the bud before it takes off. Um, I just hope this Me Too movement succeeds and that we get equity in the workplace. I never want to hear again that a woman is earning uh, less than a man for the same job in the workplace. So I think uh, women of my generation can help the younger women know that, that they don't need to stand for this. Well, Jennifer, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for giving your time. And uh, for those who are listening to this whole series, we'll be up next with Samantha Vinograd and Morgan Ortegas. Thank you. Thank you.